0: and privilege to be on heaven's shore. Now, this afternoon, I don't often say that. Often say this morning, my sermon title is. But today I'm going to say this afternoon. Demolition. I want you to bow with me as we go before the Lord. And ask him to do what he alone can do. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, that song is a reminder that yes, heaven's shores are awaiting the arrival of the saints of the ages. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we can stand where our feet have never left a print and our eyes have never beheld. Where we breathe the atmosphere of perfection and we meet the glory, the God, the person of Christ, that made it all possible. Father, now speak to and through your people, and may my heart be in tune with your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Usually during the week, and specifically in my life, so many things are going on that I wonder... What am I going to preach about this Sabbath? All week long, I've been working on lessons and preparation for an evangelistic series. Only to be reminded that Sabbath is coming quicker than I'd like it to. Father, what do I talk about this Sabbath? If you've been a part of our Wednesday night Bible studies, you know that we've been talking about the development of Christian character. And I asked a young man, I got a a phone call from an 18-year-old this week, called me from New York City. He may be watching this morning. Young man by the name of Ali. He said, Sir, I just wanted to call you to let you know that your sermons have changed my life. And I am dedicating my life to the Lord, and I want the Lord to use my life for his Glory. And since you're seasoned, he said, I want to ask you what do you recommend that God's will is for my life? I said to him, I'm not that seasoned because God alone knows His will for your life. But he said, I want to be an example. I want Christ to shine through my life. I'm going to get theological training, but I want to be able to lead people to Christ. And you know, I asked him a question that stunned him. I said, If your house caught on fire and you only can take one thing, what would it be? And he said, well, I haven't thought about that. He said, maybe my family, well, they'll be with me anyway. Maybe I'll take my Bible. And I said, a good choice. Now, if the world was going to be on fire and you only had one thing that you could take, what would it be? And he said, I haven't thought about that. I said, well, this is a good time to think about it. And he said, I don't know the answer. And I said, the only thing that you can take from this world is your character. Everything that we are surrounded by is going to be left behind. Our cars, our houses, our bank accounts, whether shallow or deep, are going to all be left behind. The only thing that we're going to take to the kingdom is our character. And so as we've been studying this topic, the Lord decided this morning to put this in a package with the title, Demolition, and I'm going to share that with you this morning. We begin by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read the verse that lays the foundation for this message. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. If you have your Bibles, wonderful. If not, you can follow me on the screen. The Apostle Paul, in considering all of the elements that were coming up against the New Testament Corinthian believers, in this city of multiple denominational ideologies, in this city of multiple personalities, multiple ethnicities, multiple ideologies, and people attempting to win victories in their lives, through their own human efforts. The Apostle Paul stood them up with these words when he said, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down, what is the next word? Strongholds. Casting down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge Of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ." Let me pause and say this, that is not easy. If you've ever had battles with your thoughts, you know that what the Apostle Paul just said is not easy. It's not something you wake up in the morning and say, I got this. It's not something that you think to yourself, this is an easy task. Bringing your thoughts into captivity. And when he said casting down arguments, what he's saying is sin has a way of arguing with us. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, sin has a way of saying, come on, you got to include me in your schedule today somehow. And you say, I don't have time. And sin says, for me, you don't have time. As much fun as we have together, you don't have time. Sin has a way of arguing with us. But Paul says, through the power of Christ, we can cast down every argument that f- sin brings our way. What do you say? Every argument. And then he also says, there are things that want to exalt itself above the knowledge of God. It may be your entertainment, your media. Your media. It may be the way that you think about church or leadership. Whatever it may be, whatever wants to exalt itself above the knowledge of God, Paul says there is a way to break those strongholds. And then he says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There were times that I was was praying, and while I'm on my knees praying, thoughts are coming into my mind that I am not even thinking of. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, here you are in the midst of a moment of spirituality, and it's like the devil has a secret door into your thoughts. Servant of the Lord says, sometimes the enemy whispers in our ears, in our own voice, things that we are not even thinking of, and we have those moments of, where did that come from? And you got to argue in the midst of your prayers to keep your mind stayed on Jesus. But I want to say at the very outset of the message, Christ can bring victory in every area to every one of us. There's nothing that Christ has ever faced that he has not been victorious over. So, Wherever you may be in the process of developing Christian character, come with me this morning on a journey called demolition. You know, you have, most of you have not been to New York City. Most of you don't want to go to New York City. But if you are a New Yorker like I am, or have been to New York, You have probably never heard of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel that opened in 1893. It was located on the corner of 5th Avenue and 33rd Street. Just to put some context to how busy my schedule was for this week, I had some wonderful pictures of that hotel, and I didn't remember until I stood up here that I did not put them in my slide presentation. So just imagine a hotel ostentatious and elegant, built with the flair of architecture of the 1890s. This hotel was 225 feet tall. It had 450 rooms. And get this, only 15 bathrooms. Now, you know, if you go to the Holiday Inn today, and there are 450 folk in the hotel. Could be 900 if there are two people in each room. You don't want to share 15 bathrooms with 900 people. Can I get an amen? Amen. So the hotel, although built in elegant style, quickly began to lose its effectiveness. And builders looked at this site as an ideal place to put up another building. So they drew the plans. They bought the property and they demolished it, the 450 rooms with an additional 100 rooms for the staff and servant and the laundry rooms and all the quarters where they cleaned the laundry. This building came down artistically and there on the ground, clean to the north, to the east, east to the south and to the west, a flat plain where a brand new building was slated to go up. And in 1929, they brought that building down to make room for what is now known as the Empire State Building. I've been to New York many times. I was raised in New York City. Not too long ago, I took a picture of the Empire State Building. But in my wildest imagination, I could not envision the hotel that used to be there because it's just not there. Not a trace of that hotel can be found. No walls, no windows, and I go so far as saying not even the dust of that former hotel can be found where the Empire State Building now stands. For a long time, the Empire State Building was the tallest building in the world, but now it's been surpassed by many other structures. But what is my point? You see, the old hotel being demolished made room for the new, grand, glorious structure that brought admiration to the entire, from the entire world to 33rd and 34th Street as they watched the Empire State Building going up. They called it back then the skyscraper. When I thought about this story, as I was reading devotions this week, You know, the Bible forecasts the very same future for every one of us. Regardless of when we were born, when Jesus finishes his work in us, there will not be a trace, not even dust, of what we used to be. Can I get an amen? It just won't be there. One day, there won't be any more angry folk. No more church members that are hostile to one another. One day, there'll be no more people that are thirsting the limelight. Or people that say one thing in church and live another way outside of church. One day, there will be a sea of perfect individuals standing on the sea of glass And I say, to God be the glory, because only the blood of Christ can get us from where we are to where one day we will be. What do you say? I I received assurance of that. My favorite passage used to be, Ryan, Romans chapter 13, verse 11 to 14, until one day, as I was reading through my Bible and studying, I found a new favorite scripture. I still love that one, but I found a new favorite one, which is the forecast of the new hotel that I'm going to be, the new building that we're going to be in the kingdom of God, the new project that God began and was able to complete. The Apostle John writes these words in 1 John 3 and verse 2, and he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. When are we children of God? When are we children of God? We're not going to be. We are God's children when? Now. And then he says, looking at God's schematic, Looking at God's plan to perfect our lives, he says, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, Brother Luis, you don't have a clue what you're going to look like when God is done. But I tell you what, you're going to be happy. Curtis and Dara are going to be happy. Come on, say amen, Curtis and Dara. We all are going to be happy when we see what God can do with flesh and blood. When God finishes the project that he began because he continues by saying but we know when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is that always amazed me because it says to me this broken young man this abandoned child this disjockey pool hustler this person that lived for the world this person that lived immorally and for the nightlife and so many ways the Bible is saying to me, one day I'm going to stand in front of Jesus and I'm going to see a reflection of myself. One day he's going to stand in front of me and he's going to see in me a reflection of himself. I'm looking forward to that day. Can you say amen? And this passage is not a probability. This is not a 90% chance that that will occur because the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, Being confident, what is that second word? Confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work, where? In us, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard these passages before, but there is a big however. There is a big however. There is a big, how is this going to occur? When we look at God's projection of our future reality, we look at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, we look at the Empire State Building, and people that can look back in the history of New York City can say, it was hard to imagine that that would be replaced by that. And what is similar in this story is the Empire State Building was built on the very same ground where the Waldorf Astoria Hotel used to be. One day, the character of God is going to be revealed in the very same life where the character of God was not seen. One day, the glory of God is going to be revealed through the very same vessel where the glory of God was once absent. It wasn't new ground, it's the same ground. God is not going to get rid of us and build a new body and fill that one with his presence. God is going to take broken down folk like us, rebuild us, and one day we're going to be like Jesus. As long as I've been a pastor, there are days when I say that ain't going to happen. And then there are days when I say, I can see how it could make a difference. There are days when the world gets the best of me. There are days when the Lord gets the best of me. And then I'm reminded in those moments about how this all happens. So walk with me through the project of the demolition and the rebuilding. You see, before anything could be built, Something old has to be demolished. The builders must tear down the old and make room for the new. In the very same way, God looks at the old in our lives. He tears it down to make room for the new. God doesn't build the new on top of the old. He replaces the old with the new. But after the demolition, After God demolishes the things in our lives, they are nothing but a pile of rubble. And praise God, there was so much rubble in my life, I am so glad that God has a dumping ground that nobody has an address to. (laughs) Can you say the same thing about your life? I love it that God knows where to hide our junk. You don't know how true that is because I can say this is true about all of us, is some of you knew what's in other folks' lives. Come on. If some of you could say to folk, here is the actual DVD of everything I ever did. Don't tell anybody else in church that you watched it. Some of you wouldn't wait till that DVD is over. Get on your cell phone and start talking about all the stuff that you saw in somebody else's life. Praise God when he tears down the junk in our lives. God has a dumping ground that has no address. (laughs) Reminds me of a story that I heard one day about pastors, four pastors that were out golfing together. And they decided, as clergy do, that, you know, pastors can't tell church members everything. But pastors can be open with pastors because, you know, they're pastors. They just kind of talk about stuff that... That's why we have pastor's retreats. We could dump our stuff on other pastors while they dump their stuff on us. And these four pastors are out golfing one day, and one pastor said, you know, I've been carrying something for a long time I need to get off my chest. I've been struggling. And since we're all pastors, I could just tell you guys this. And he said, you know, I really... Really have been struggling with cigarettes, and my church doesn't know about it. So every now and then, when I'm on vacation, I gotta take a, gotta get a cigarette. And the three other pastors looked at each other, thinking, uh. and one of them got excited, said, "Okay, since you talked about that, I could tell you about my struggle. I'm still struggling with alcohol." And my church don't know it because before I go to church, I always gargle with mouthwash. And when I say happy Sabbath, all they smell is Listerine. But now you know. You don't tell, I won't tell. And the third pastor said, now I could top all three of y'all. Because see, I'm still struggling with stealing. And I haven't paid an honest tithe in I don't know how long. But now you're my junk, and I know you're drunk, and I know you're drunk. So you don't tell, I ain't going to tell. And they looked at this pastor standing by all by himself like he wasn't going to say anything. And he said, you know, I've been struggling with gossip. (laughs) And I can't wait to tell what I learned today. (laughs) And some of us are that way. We like to talk about stuff other folk are struggling with, mm -hmm, that we have already gotten a victory over. Isn't that right? We look at the debris in their lives and we say, I don't know what their problem is. And we like to talk about other folk when, in fact, what may be most noticed in their lives to us may be what's true in our lives about them. I've noticed, and one psychologist said, the thing we notice about other people the best or the most easily is the thing that is true in our lives about us. But one day, we won't be able to talk about other folk because we will all be brand new in Jesus. (laughs) You know, when you think about the hotel, they had to be a demolition before the building went up. And the, tri- and the transition in the Christian life between the old and the new is a very simple transition. Let's look at the transition. You've heard this before, too. But there's a hook in the sermon that you don't see coming. But let's talk about the things you do see and understand. Here is the simple transition between the old and the new. John the Apostle writes in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and what else? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, cleansing from all unrighteousness means something that many of us didn't really get. Some of us think it means we are instantly holy. What it means is we are instantly innocent. It doesn't mean we're instantly holy. What it means is our sins are wiped out. Our debt is paid. We are justified. And to make it even clear, if a, if a person that is a criminal stands before the judge in court and the judge said, today your record is being expunged, you can walk out this court an innocent man. And then he might say, and make sure it doesn't happen again. He's not declaring that you are a perfect, upright citizen. He is simply saying, Everything you did from this point back has been wiped out and expunged today. But don't get innocence and holiness mixed up with each other. When we were justified, we were declared innocent before God. Our sins were wiped out, our debt was paid, we were justified. As I've been studying this topic, and I'm going to bring you with me slowly, one of the greatest misconceptions we have as Christians is that the end of the old way of life is a guarantee for a new way of life. Let me go back to my hotel. To bring down the walled off Astoria doesn't mean that they have to build the Empire State Building. It simply means the walled off story no longer exists. The ground is clear. Our sins are wiped out. They no longer exist. Our junk has been carted away. But there's a brand new clean slate, and we often misunderstand that the old way of life is not a guarantee that a new way of life will be built in the same individual. I'm going to see how how... how, how how, how clear you're listening today. And for that reason, we tend to misunderstand the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Another passage you know very well. But, I, but I decided, you know, there are certain passages we know so well that we don't really know them. There are certain Bible verses that we've, we've recited throughout our lives. But when we go back and examine them, Terry, we get this aha moment. And we say to ourselves, I never understood it that way before. And these passages that I'm sharing with you right now are some of those that I decided, Lord, let me go back to them and find out what they're saying and what they're not saying. Let's look at one that sounds like a guarantee that a new way of life is coming. Second Corinthians five and verse 17. Notice the words of the apostle Paul. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. He is a what? New creation. Old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become what? All things have become new. Notice what he didn't say. He said, all the stuff that you did is passed away. There's room now being made. When I looked at that, the way that the Greek is communicating that, Paul is in essence saying, God has made room for everything new to now exist in the very same location where everything old used to exist. And here's what he's saying. Deliverance from sin, are you listening, is not the same as deliverance from human nature. Deliverance from sin is not the same as deliverance from human nature. If it were, then the day that I was baptized, vis-a-vis Curtis and Dara, I don't have to do anything more from that day on. My job is done. But it's called the new birth for a reason. It's called the new one. When babies are born, is that the end of life or the beginning? So this new birth is not a guarantee that your child is going to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer. They may grow up to be a criminal. They may grow up to be a bank robber. Oh, thank you, April. It all depends on how you build them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. The same thing applies, and we don't see it this way. We often read that passage like it applies just to children, but it applies to God's children. When we are born, unless we are training our minds in the way we shall go, there is no guarantee that when we are old, we're, gonna, we're not going to depart from it. Whatever you train your life to be, when you get older, you will not depart from it. Thus, old critical Adventists. I I heard a saying this week. Somebody said, there's no such thing as an old, grumpy person. they just so old, they just tell the truth. You've heard me say this before, but it fits right here. I've heard some of the greatest untruths. My mom raised me not to say lies. I've heard some of the greatest untruths told at funerals. Oh, they were such a nice person. You know, they they just loved everybody. And, you know, they were the kind of person that just could not hesitate to tell you off. Or you were the kind of person that just didn't want to be around him, didn't want to see him. And at funerals we say, well, that's just the way brother so-and-so is. That's just the way everybody knows that that's how sister so-and-so is. But that's not God's plan. God doesn't clear our old stuff out to make room for new old stuff. God doesn't get rid of our debris and... Give us the job to go get that debris and bring it back. There has to be a point in our lives where God does what he does. And then there are things that God will never do that he puts it in our responsibility to do. Before we get to that part, let's talk about the surrendering part. After we surrender to Christ, there are traits in our nature that some of us can easily overcome. And others that are difficult to break. Am I telling the truth? So, what may be easy for you may not be easy for me. What may be easy for me may not be easy for Bob. Bob may boast about what he overcame, and I may, might be saying to myself, ah, "I'm still struggling with that." So it varies from Christian to Christian. Some people can give up certain things so easily, but we don't get we don't get the title of overcomer. By just bragging about the easy things we gave up, we've got to have complete victory and provision has been made for us to overcome by the blood of the Lamb everything that confronts us in the development of our characters. I believe that. And I can't tell you why. Because there are victories that have come in my life that were easy. And then there are victories that came in my life that required a whole lot of elbow grease. And a lot of knee pads. And a lot of revisiting the same. Okay, Lord, I've been here last week. Please. That's why I'm so glad that when I read the Bible, some of us ask God for forgiveness every week for the same stuff. And you know why he says yes? Yes. Because his mercies are new every morning. And his faithfulness is great. God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should what? Should perish. So God knows. He's a man that's acquainted with the frailties of our characters. He was tempted in all points just as we are. So never get to the place where you say, God doesn't understand this. He understands everything that we are confronted by. But some people are in categories where only God can do it. For example... Moses described those easy victories. Here's one of those easy victories we find in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verse 13. This one is all on God. He says, in this situation, stand still. So what do we do, friends? We stand still. God's got this. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Here's the key, which He will accomplish for you today. There are certain things in my life That when God told me, stand still, and I stood still, God handled it. Anybody know what you, anybody had that experience? When you come to the end of all the attempts you've made to discover something or to remedy something, and God said, just stand still. I got this. Does God have it? Can God do it? What? My phone just said, you do a pretty mean robot. I promise to stand still. (laughs) Stand still means any attempt on your part, Ron, to be victorious in this area is going to result in failure because you can't do it. Stand still. I got this. And I can tell you today, I'm standing here because God, throughout the course of my ministry and my life, has told me on more occasions, and I like to admit, you need to stand still. I got this. Come on, you sanctimonious folk. Because you know that's true. You know you're not here because you figured it out. You know you're here because God has a all wins and no losses kind of experience. God knows how to tell oceans to shut up. God knows how to tell the wind, you're making too much noise. God knows how to tell the sun, ah, hang around for a day longer. God knows how to stop rain and bring rain. God knows how to rain food from heaven. He doesn't need Walmart. God knows how to cause chariots of fire to suddenly appear in the midst of our most difficult battles. God can do anything. So sometimes God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which means don't try on your part. And then there are those times that you just can't sta- stand still. Standing still is not enough. We find one of those examples in the lives of the Israelites as they continued in their journey in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 17. And look at this one. This is another one, another attempt on our part that belonged to God, but there was something that we had to do. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, the Bible says, you will, not, you will not need to fight in this battle. But notice what he says. Position yourself. Then stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. I, Ryan, I studied this passage, and I came to find out that the, the writer of this passage was saying, in essence, and I looked at many commentaries. I like to do that to see what Matthew Henry has to say and the Cruden Concordance and all the various Bible commentaries and different writers. And sometimes I'd peek at other folks' sermons to see, okay, I got that, that's pretty good. What the senescence was saying is sometimes God has to get us into the right position before he can fight for us. Because some of us have good skills, but we are in the wrong position. I'm not talking about leadership position. I'm talking about when the Bible says, position yourself, another way of saying it is, you need the right spirit for me to be able to gain this victory for you. There's some people that are solid Bible students. They know doctrines. They are sticklers for doing right, but they just don't have the right spirit. And they're not willing to position themselves with the right spirit for God to bring them to victory. Let me make it even clearer. There's some folk that can tell you anything that the Bible talks about. They they understand the Greek and the Hebrew and they are Bible students. They understand how to break down a particular passage and make it very clear and abundantly clean in your mind. But there are folk you don't want to be around because they have the wrong spirit. So when the Bible said position yourself, what the writer was saying is get in the right frame of mind And then I will be willing to fight for you. But I'm not going to fight for you with that kind of attitude. That's why David prayed the prayer he did in Psalm 51, verse 10. Notice what David had to do. He knew that he was in the wrong spirit. And that's why he prayed in Psalm 51, verse 10. Notice what he said, which is, in fact, a prayer many of us ought to pray. He said, create in me a what? Clean heart, O God, and renew a what? Right spirit. Some people have not positioned themselves to be in the right attitude. They could preach. They could teach. They could do whatever they are qualified to do. But man, they got the wrong attitude. I had an elder like that. I may have told you the story. been here so long, I probably told it to you. don't remember. But I had an elder like that, a head elder in one of my churches. And if Brother Hutchinson was here, he could tell you that story. I was out of town doing an evangelistic series with Pastor Doug Batchelor, I think it was. And I came back only to find out that my my head elder had told off so many people in church I couldn't even count. And they were all women. They would come and ask for a copy of the sermon. Somebody else was speaking. He said, wait. I didn't record it yet. When I get the copies, I'll let you know. And when I got back, I had a line Terry, Terry's not this kind of head elder. I just want to make it clear. <laughs> Praise God for the right attitudes. <laughs> I had a line of folk, uh, Jason, just... And the complaints were flying from every direction. And I was getting continually perturbed by this attitude that my head elder was displaying for the, for the duration of the time I was out of town. And I pulled him aside. Is this, is this true? He's is this right. They need to stay out of my way. Stay out of my face. They'll get it when I get it. And then my wife came to me and said, You know what he said to me? I said, That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. So Brother Hutchinson and I pulled him aside in my office that Sabbath. This man could be my grandfather. Strong man. Practices karate every morning. He tells me how he does that. In the military. He would, when he walked, when he did communion. he was, he was precise. He was good at running audio. He could run, he could duplicate tapes. He had so many skills. And I said to him, brother, you don't have the right spirit to be an elder in this church. And as tears are rolling down in my eyes, I said, as of today, your eldership has been rescinded until we work on that attitude. And he said to me, So, Pastor, who's going to do all the stuff that I do? I said, we could train folk, but you don't have the right spirit. And he said, how could you do that to me? I said, I'm not doing that to you. This is what you need. You need the right spirit. And after six months, he said to me, I need six more months. He came to church. He was able to sit down hear the sermon, nobody asked him about tapes, and I started noticing his attitude was becoming sweeter. He was smiling. Even the ladies in the church were not running up the wrong aisle trying to get away from him. But the problem was he had a wife who had the bad spirit. So his wife would tell him off in public, so when his wife was not around, he told women off, but he really wanted to tell his wife off. But because he knew if he did, he got home, he was going to be in trouble. He took it out on the women, just to get out the frustration. <laughs> Come on, brethren, the husbands need prayer. Don't be taking stuff out on your wife. Right, right, brother, right, Pastor Conway, don't be taking stuff out on my wife. You need to handle your business. So he, uh, we took him out of office, and after about a year, he returned to office, and these are the words, quote, Pastor, that was the best year of my adult life. And we returned him to eldership, voted him back in office. And until the day we left that church, that man and I were like this. And I have in my house today a San Francisco streetcar that he had made for my wife and I, and he carved on there to Pastor John and Angela, whom we love. When we were leaving, when I went back, he had called me several times for issues rising up after we left. But what I'm saying is God wanted to build on that spot something that he was not willing to allow to develop. And some students are like that. Some people are like that. They brag about the things that are easy to give up. I gave up this. I gave up that. I don't know what your problem is. They, they magnify what's wrong in your life. I don't know what's wrong with you. We talk about the things that we struggle with Minimally. But we would not hesitate to talk about the things that other people struggle with because it's easy to turn the spotlight in the wrong direction when heaven, in fact, is desiring to turn the spotlight on us. God wants us to be in the kingdom, as is the case with the building of the Empire State Building. It was to be occupying the same ground. And I say that on on several instances because when Jesus justifies us, He clears the ground to make room for the same spot to be the place where the new life is existing. There are some folk that smoked that don't smoke any longer. There are some folk that struggle with alcohol that don't drink anymore. There are some people that struggle with bad attitudes and immorality and all kinds of things that no longer exist because they allowed the Lord to come in and give them new habits, Amen. new behaviors. They even speak differently. You know, some folk could curse easily. Like one lady said to somebody on Sabbath morning, if it wasn't Sabbath morning, I'd tell you how stupid you are. Already did. <laughs> don't, you know, don't cancel Sabbath morning in my behalf. Tell me how you really think. God wants to bring in new choices, a new spirit, new desires. But let me say something. When the ground is cleared, that's when the work begins. But let me make it clear what the work is not. Your work, your battle, is not a battle against sin. But you thought it was. Come on, help me preach, Bob. Your sermon is not a battle against sin. You can't fight sin. Sin is too powerful for us to fight. Matter of fact, the 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 preamble of Jesus is clear. First John on John one twenty nine. Who is he? The Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sin of the world. So Jesus has already neutralized The power of sin. Praise God for that. So the warfare that we face on a day-by-day basis is not against sin. The warfare that we face on a day-by-day basis is how do we keep the debris of our past from becoming the building blocks of our present? How do we keep the old things out so that the Lord can make way for the new? That's why the Apostle Paul, I believe the writer of Hebrews, wrote it this way, And he made it very clear, we don't become overcomers by giving up easy stuff. He brings this into clear view about what God requires of us. Notice his words in Hebrews 12 and verse 1. He says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of what? Witnesses. Let let us lay aside what? Every weight and the sin which so easily, come on ensnares us. And right right about now, I think, right now, in your, in your mind, that sin is coming up. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what the Spirit of God is saying to me. That sin that so easily ensnares me. That sin that I love, that sin that is my pet, that sin that has breakfast with me, that sin that goes to bed with me, that sin that when I travel, I make sure it's in my backpack. That sin that when I'm done with my devotions, I revisit it just to make sure that it didn't leave the house yet. The sin that so easily ensnares us. The writer is talking about that easy, that loving sin, that darling sin, that thing that just you think that if I get a little more time, I could enjoy this sin just about a week more, a month more. When I see the Sunday law coming in, then I'll get rid of that sin. My brother, my sister, that's dangerous to think that we can give a particular sin in our lives a little more time to hang around thinking that somehow we have time. It so easily ensnares us. And the reason why we've not been able to run the race with endurance is because that that sin has become a ball and chain, and we can't go anywhere without it, but we love the way it feels on our ankles. The sin that so easily besets us. Having our sins forgiven is like the land being purchased. But the difference between the building and us is we have got to choose to build. God does not build when you don't give him permission to build. He'll forgive your past, but choices are essential for the development of Christian character. We are not robots. We are free moral agents. God makes us innocent, but we've got to choose to make holy. You know that hymn, take time to be holy. How much time have you taken to be holy this week? How many many days, how many hours, how many minutes have you spent in reading your Bible? Is your schedule so packed that your Bible, you don't even know where it is? When I was in the Heritage Singers and I forgot my Bible at a Sunday church, we did a concert at that church. And I was banging on the doors to get my Bible and they said, well, the whole, all the staff left, everybody left, the church is shut up, you can't get it. So I said, I'm not leaving until I get my Bible. And Max May said, we got to go. We'll have them mail your Bible to you. Where is it? I said, it's in the back room in the green room for three days. Don't talk to me. I need my Bible. Like some of you need your cup of coffee. I needed my Bible. You shouldn't be drinking coffee, by the way, anyway. (laughs) Was I sour? No. I was holding on like this because I couldn't begin my day without my Bible. That Bible is still in my library. I got them stacked up like this, one on top of the other, the very first Bible I ever got, the pages are sullied and worn and so fully full of different colors. that the, the ink in the back is fading. The markers are beginning to die out. I can't even see what I wrote. My first Bible, my prison ministry Bible. Going from Sabbath school to the local prisons just to preach to the inmates and sing to people that show up. You know, when you go to prison, they don't pay those folk to come to hear the sermon. Am I right, Bob? They're there because they want to be there. If anybody don't have to be there, they don't have to be there. And those of us who are on the outside, I'm not speaking to the choir, you all here today, it's a privilege that whenever the doors of the church are open for us to be there. To begin to develop, I'll use that word again, to begin to develop habits that will carry us into eternity. When we get to heaven, can you imagine Jesus is preaching this Sabbath and he asked the question, "Where is so-and-so? <laughs> they slept in today. They had a long flight from Jupiter. <laughs> Isaiah 66 says, "From one moon noon, from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come before me to worship." But you know why? Because we developed that down here. And you know me, I'm so glad that Brother Ricky Carter made that emphatic appeal this morning about pastor, invite you to come to Sabbath school. Because all that you face on the week, it should be a pleasure to come to church early on Sabbath morning. And we're asking you to get here at 9.30. And some of you get to work at 7.30. Jason, I've been trying to figure this out. I, I have not figured it out yet. How 7.30 on Monday if you get to work at seven thirty-one, right, Jay, supervisor, manager, you're late. My wife lives right around the corner. Feel like seven twenty-seven? I'ma be late. <laughs> 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 and I got worship. She says, "That's okay, honey. You don't. You're not always late. Just most of the time." <laughs> I'm just, no, we're having fun. <laughs> we're real with each other. And then she'd say on Tuesday morning, don't forget to be on don't don't forget to be on corporate worship. I'll be on corporate worship. And if I if my face don't show up on that Google, my wife is calling me. What are you doing? (laughs) That's 730. What if. It was 930. How many of us would say, why is corporate worship so late? I'm two hours into my day already by 930. And the devil is so good that on Sabbath morning, Donna, nine thirty is like, oh. "Why are they having Sabbath school so early?" <laughs> Isn't that a trip, Darrell? Isn't that a trip? I'm trying to figure out the psychology of this. Somebody got to help me out because I've been in ministry 35 years and I still haven't figured it out. So God's got to flip this around for some of y'all to make it the kingdom because Jesus is going to have all the early morning Sabbath school. <laughs> and some of y'all, you better be there. What am I saying? All the things we are going to hope to be in the kingdom, we've got to start developing them when, my brother and sisters? Now. You see, because deliverance from sin and deliverance from human nature are not the same. Deliverance from the past choices is not deliverance from the future choices. You still got to make choices. And if those choices were easy, the Apostle Paul would not testify as he did in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Look at what he said. He know, he's just like some of us. He knows exactly what we're going through. We're going through the same thing he went through. Paul the Apostle, after his conversion, he said in Romans 7, verse 18 and 19, he says... For I know that in me that is in my flesh, how much? Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to get the church on time? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I just modified it a little bit. <laughs> Am I, is that all right? Is that all right? Is that all right, Moses? How to get the church on I don't know how to do it. How to perform what is good, I do not find. And then he says, for the good that I will to do, some of us are really, we got every intention, right? The clerks and other. some of us have the best of intentions. We are going to be there this Sabbath. We are going to be there this Sabbath. We don't even have children, and we barely make it out of the house on time. We could, we could tumble out of our house and get to church. So I understand. But I want to say this. Parents, I applaud you for getting out of the house on Sabbath morning. Can the church say amen for the parents? To get out of the house with children is like being freed from prison. (laughs) I'm I'm telling you, especially if you have one bathroom and five kids, you got to get about four o'clock to get ready for church. Especially when your daughter is like at that stage in life where she just has to notice all her beauty. Could you open the door? I'm not done yet. So to get for parents to be at church on Sabbath morning, I take my hat off to parents. I don't, when I started getting to church just before Sabbath school, I started saying, honey, just imagine people that have kids. It's not easy. God bless you, Ressa. Your children are still in the church. That's the task. I understand that. God gave you some good children, but you are a determined parent, you and your husband, Ozzie. Get them in there. Work hard. So when they get old, that's where they are. Now, now, I'm going to take a little turn here. Because as Paul looks at his inability, there is a word associated with the justice system that speaks volume of the development or lack thereof of Christian character. It's a word that you may not have heard before, but here it is. It's called recidivism. Say that with me. <laughs> recidivism. <laughs> Some of you just said that for the first time today. Last time. Ready? Recidivism. That's right. You know what it is, Bob. Another word is repeat offenders, people that serve their time for their sins and after being freed from prison, end up back in there. Why? Because although they enjoy freedom, this word is going to get deep now. I'm going to wind up, but give me a few more minutes. They enjoy the freedom. But they have not broken the strongholds that they developed while being prisoners in sin. I'm acquainting both together because, you know, whether we talk about prison ministry or not, thank God that he believes in prison ministry because we were all prisoners at one time. But in that old life, there are certain strongholds that we have developed, certain viewing habits, certain reading habits certain entertainment habits certain eating habits certain drinking habits some of us nurtured bad attitudes and we're not about to change that because we're Christians these are strongholds that we have brought in to the christian life and although we enjoy being free we are a repeat offender because we have not developed new habits we have not cleared the ground of all that old debris, and God is saying, I can't build anything until you get rid of the debris. And then Paul the Apostle talks about how these strongholds, and I looked that up to just get a deeper understanding. You see, a stronghold is made up of thoughts and feelings that when we continue to repeat these thoughts and feelings and behavior, Psychologists say that these thoughts, feelings, and behavior develop a life of its own, and it's though there are two people living inside of you, one that wants to do right, but the other one that you've given all the strength to is the one that's actually in control. And you try through your human efforts to break it, but you can't do it. Because you have developed so many strongholds in your life, whatever it may be, whether devices or habits or whatever they may be, wherever they may be categorized, you've developed strongholds that are so deeply entrenched in the way you think, the way you behave, the way you act, the things you do, that even though you say, I'm free in Jesus, you say, for how long? That's why the Apostle Paul in the Scripture reading today, notice what he talked about. He talked about the way that it cannot be broken. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not what carnal but mighty in god breaking it down don't try to win a carnal battle with carnal weapons try it victory is not i'm gonna do it 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 hmm that's why it's so ridiculous i think of some religions they are monks they hide way up in the in tibetan mountains way at the top They isolate themselves from people because they think that the people are the problems. Well, in fact, the sin problem is inside. It's not around us. There are some people that could be perfectly good saints in the middle of crazy New York City. And there are some people that are in the country that still have not found out how to be a saint. And it ain't the bush. It can't be the corn. They ain't sniffing soya beans. It's what's going on on the inside. And they are trying through carnal weapons to win a carnal battle. He continues. How do we do it? But mighty in God for pulling down what? So Paul is saying strongholds can be brought down, casting down arguments. When that sin argues, and nah nah nah. Jesus, would you go and argue with him? Because Jesus never lost an argument with sin. <laughs> never lost an argument with sin. Even the devil in the garden, Jesus. If you are the Son of God. Now If I was Jesus, I could have said, you need to back up a little bit. But Jesus didn't do that because that's what human nature does. We try to defend. We try to fight with carnal weapons. We fight carnal battles with carnal weapons. And some people, as Christians, we try to win arguments by trying to be perfect arguers. We try to out-argue the other Christian brother in church to win the argument when, in fact, what we both need to do is pray together. And sin always tries to bring itself above, it tries to rise above the priority of your Bible study, exalts itself above your time with Christ, exalts itself above your prayer life, exalts itself above your Sabbath school lesson study, exalts itself above your Wednesday night Bible study. I, I'm, not in, in, I'm not intimating anything. I just looked. It's exalting itself above everything that God wants to put there, and you wonder why you still feel and act, and do what you do when you try to win a carnal battle with carnal weapons it's not going to happen why for the definition of strongholds and i'll give you 3 steps and we're out of here all right strongholds i did my homework our choices are what choices that are continually opposed and hostile to our spiritual life that are deeply entrenched in our natural life. And the more they are repeated in thought or actions, the stronger they become. Fact number one, we cannot defeat our strongholds because our strongholds keep defeating us. That's why they're strongholds. Unhealthy thought patterns shape our mind, control our decisions. Unhealthy behavior cycles, we continue to repeat the things that we don't want to repeat. And this is deep. We subconsciously and without actual permission make us psychologically dependent on a bad behavior that we don't want to do. You heard me right. Let me say it again. Whatever you're trying to break, you have repeated it so frequently that your body physiologically, like a drug addict, like an alcoholic, is craving that bad behavior when in fact you really don't like it. Step number one, are you ready for it? Before we change our actions, say it together, we must change our thoughts. Together, one more time. Before we change our actions, we must change our what? Thoughts. Don't use natural means to win natural battles. Christians don't use carnal weapons. We must call on the weapons that are mighty in God. You see, the building of Christian characters like construction The difference between the hotel and us is we have choices. And let me make a point that's very powerful. Not even God could tear down strongholds without your permission. Not even God. If God was the kind of person that butts into our sin, he would have stopped Eve from taking of that fruit. But God doesn't butt into the the decisions you make. But he will show up after you've made that decision and say, Now, do you remember why I told you not to do it? And praise him for his mercy. He'll give us forgiveness. He'll give us pardon. He'll make a way that we can come back to ourselves. So before we change our actions, we must change our thoughts. Romans 12 and verse 2. And this is how it happens. This is why the study of God's word is so vitally important. You cannot change your thoughts by reading the same material. You cannot change your thoughts By watching the same programs you cannot change your thoughts by repeating the same behaviors on the same social media websites you cannot be falling in love with the way you look and fall in love with the way that Christ looks you cannot make yourself an idol on the throne of your heart if you want to make room for Christ to be on the throne of your heart are you hearing me today so how do you do it Paul the Apostle says when it comes to deciding what to build on that spot when all the thoughts are coming to you and all the suggestions that Satan throws you away, he is saying, ah, ah, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. I don't know how many of you have in your library anything to renew your mind. got a lot of books. If you need some, ask me. But I like to read books of people that have found ways to be victorious, and I like people that are professional in certain areas to, to talk to me every now and then. My wife would say, what are you reading? And I have this book called Mental Toughness. It's a Harvard Review press. Now this is not necessarily a book about spiritual people but the lessons are so ingrained here that when you add the spiritual element Ryan, you begin to see how a person could be in prison for six years after being falsely accused, not only forgive his accusers and refuse the invitation to, be, to have a a, a ticket to live someplace else in the world, he not only forgave his accusers in China, but he stayed in China where he was going to serve 19 years in prison. And because he was such a marvelous Christian in prison, in, in solitary confinement for six years, his attitude was so beautiful, they let him out on good behavior. And they said, sir, we're so sorry. We just found out that you were falsely, falsely accused. We can't take back our six years in solitary confinement, but here's what we want to do. We'll pay for you to go anywhere in the world to start all over. And he said, no, I'm going to stay right here in China. And today, the largest law firm that works between Chinese and American economic trade decisions is that man. What was the difference? He did not allow the darkness of his surroundings to become the darkness of his mind. He asked for books. He read in the prisons. There was no light. The guards came to love him so much, they gave him a flashlight so he could read his books. And when they said, we want to take you out of solitary confinement and put you in general population, he said, no, leave me in solitary confinement. I'm growing in here. How many of us could grow if God puts us in solitary confinement? Renewing your mind. And only then will you be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Am I right? But here's the ca- here's the caution. If your thoughts remain old, your behaviors also remain old. We can entertain the same thoughts and expect different behaviors. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians two, verse five, look at these words. What's the first word? That means stop stopping me. Read that in the Greek. That means stop stopping me. I want to put my thoughts in your mind, but you won't let me let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. And in the book Temperance, what a powerful quotation. Page 112, paragraph 3. Servant of the Lord says, God has given us the power of what? Say it with me. Choice. It is ours to exercise. But here's the caution. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot change our thoughts, our impulses, our affections. We cannot make ourselves pure, fit for God's service. But we can choose to serve God. We can give him our will. Then he will work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus, our whole nature. How much of our nature? Our whole nature will be brought under the control of Christ. Can I ask the question, how many of you want Christ to be controlling your nature? He's not going to take it. You got to give it. Joshua 24, 15, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the Jordan or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But may this be your testimony. Finish it with me. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When I studied deeply into this passage, I found out that God had already freed the Israelites from it from Egypt when Joshua brought this challenge to us. And they had to decide to go back or go forward. They had to choose to serve the gods of their fathers. And some of us, let me add this in there for no extra charge. Some of us spent all of our lives talking about our family's broken stuff. The gods of our fathers, the habits of our fathers. I'm so glad that I was raised by a different man than my father. Because my father was a night man. He slept during the day. He worked at night. He was a jazz musician. He lived for the world. He died in the world. But I was raised by a man who had good habits. He went to work when he was supposed to during the day and slept at night. And the lady that I was raised by was a godly woman that helped me develop characteristics that brought me through some of the worst choices I made. But I had to say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But some people say, the temptation is too strong. Here's what the servant of the Lord says in the book Maranatha, page 225 and paragraph 5. The strongest temptation is no excuse for what? Sin. However great the pressure brought to bear upon the soul, transgression is what? Our own act. It is not in the power of earth or hell to compel anyone to sin. Let that sink in. And it ends by saying this. The will must consent. The heart must yield. Or passion cannot overbear reason. Nor iniquity triumph over righteousness. What is being said, if you don't yield, I don't care how bad the temptation is. It ain't going anywhere. Whew. Did I learn that? Yes, I did. Thank you, Lord. You got to yield to give sin permission. Second point before my last. Don't use your thoughts to overcome your behavior. Develop new thoughts from God's word, but there is something else you must do. First Thessalonians two thirteen. Got one more point, then I'll give you your ticket to the airport. Here it is. First Thessalonians two verse thirteen, the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians he says. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, you heard it from us. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the what? The word of God, which also effectively works in you who do what? Now watch this. Here's what he said. Some of you have a Bible reading plan, but you don't have a Bible believing plan. They're different. I have never seen a Bible-believing plan put together by the Adventist Church. I've seen a Bible-reading plan, but I've never seen a Bible-believing plan. God told me, John, stop reading the Bible and start believing the Bible. Because it doesn't work if you read it. It works if you believe it. The devil reads the Bible. We got theologians that read the Bible to use it against us. The Bible is, reading the Bible is not the key. Believing it is. All things are possible to those who believe. Some people say, I want to see before I believe. The Lord said, no, when you believe, you'll see. And my last point, say it together. Surrender your will to Christ. Now, As I was sitting down last night putting the last touches on this, the Lord brought this thought to me. Too many of us are bent on having our own way. The problem is, our let me just say that again. Too many of us are bent on having our own will. The problem is, our will keeps having us. And that's why you read this passage so many times you missed it. Luke 22:42, 42. And I have one passage left and we're done. Look what Jesus said. Father, if it is your will, do what? Take this cup away from me. But look at this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now most of you see, not my will, but yours be done. But watch this. God does not take away our test. Did he take it from Christ? Jesus did did not have his test removed. And I learned something. If we give him our will, I'm going to say it slowly, he will not fail our test. Jesus said, remove the cup. The father said, no. If we give the father our test, he will not fail it. Did you get that? Why did Jesus make it through the cross? Because he said, father, this cup is too much for me. I'm giving my will to you. You bring me through this moment. And a lot of people say the father Left him? No, the Father was there, hidden in the clouds. If the Father wasn't there, Jesus could not survive that moment. Let me tell you something, my brothers and sisters. When I'm learning, I'm still learning. I'm getting up there in age, but I'm still learning. I used to pray for God to take the cup of the temptation from me. He said, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking the cup. Give me your will, and I won't fail your test. Give me your will, and I won't fail your test. Oh, I wish you could hear that. And here's the last quote. This makes it clear. Education, page 289, paragraph 1. I know Ryan enjoyed these quotations. Here they are. Here it is, Ryan. The will is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or choice. Every human being, how many human beings? Every human being possessed of reason has power to choose the right. In every experience of life, God's word to us is what? What? choose you this day whom ye will serve. Everyone, I hope you could handle this, may place his will on the side of the will of God, may choose to obey him, and by thus linking himself to divine agencies, uh-oh, he may stand where nothing can force him to do evil. Can I just can I embellish that a little bit? All the forces of hell, when you're on God's side, can't get you to do wrong. Servant Lord said, even the weakest saint, when they are on their knees, are stronger than all the powers of the forces of darkness. You see, the problem here, my brethren, is, and I'm gonna end with a scripture that's gonna hurt you. You ready for it? Put on your vest, Jason. Here it comes. We think this scripture means what it doesn't say. But let me end with this passage. This is a passage I don't hear much about because it talks about things that we think are impossible. But it's in the Bible, Donna. It's in the Bible. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. Praise team, coming up and join me. I'm going to need your help. Whoever has been born of God, come on, say it, does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he, together, cannot sin because he has been born of God. I've had a a problem with that passage because it almost sounds like I could live a life without sin. And I've been trying to live a life without sin, but I've been failing until I realized what that passage said. It is not our seed that does not sin. It is his seed that does not sin. You see, when the seed of the unfailing one remains in those that always fail, he will never fail. Let me say it again. It is not my seed that doesn't sin. It is his seed that does not sin. Help me out, mothers. You see, if your husband is blonde, your baby might be blonde because you don't have anything to do with it. It's your husband's seed. Come on. You can't can't change it. It's in his DNA. Perfection is in the DNA of Christ. If If we let that sinlessness abide in us, we will not practice sin. Could you say amen for me, Brian? Amen. <laughs> Why is that so vitally important to this sermon? Because God can demolish every tendency in my life to want to sin and replace it with every one of his tendencies that never sinned. So if the, if the seed of Christ who never wanted to sin is in a person who likes to sin and my seed is turned off and his seed is turned on, I can live a life above sin. We don't talk like that. I've heard people say, we'll be sin until Jesus comes. No, we'll be in this mortal sinful flesh. But we don't have to be subject to the powers or Paul would not say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So I don't have to, I don't have to let my desire become my action. I don't have to let my thoughts lead me down the path that I shouldn't be going down. I can say, Father, turn the seed on. That's why the devil was so angry about Christ coming because there was a seed he was warned about in Genesis. And that seed was coming, and he'd been trying to kill Christ for thousands of years, but that seed made it through. That seed made it through. That seed went to the cross. That seed died to gain the victory over the power of his seed and deliver me. And today I want to say to you, why is Pastor John living victoriously, because I'm not trying to do it in my seed. I'm trying to do it in his seed. His seed has demolished my seed. How many today want to be a part of the demolition? The demolition. I'm not asking you to be victorious. I'm telling you, Christ has already been victorious. I'm not asking you to go home and fight with yourself. I'm going, I'm saying, go home and accept the victory that Christ has already won and simply say, Father, turn this seed on and turn mine off. Because I've never been victorious, but you've never failed. Is there somebody here today that say, I want to be able to live a life where the seed of Christ is always on and mine is always off? If that's your desire, would you stand with me today? The demolition. That's why I don't build my hope on psychology. I don't build my hope on philosophy. I don't even build my hope on theology. I build my hope on Jesus Christ. I don't build my hope on what I learned in school or what I learned in books or what I learned in Harvard Press. I build my hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My wife and I in our home, there are times we're studying our Bibles and we, we tear up together because we look at where we were and where we are today and we say, God, that seed that you talked about is so powerful that it's doing things in me that I never thought were possible. And my brothers and sisters today, If there's somebody that wants to say, I want that kind of seed in my life. When we sing this song, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to come down front and say, I want that seed in my life, but wait a minute, don't just come down front. You're gonna come down front because you want that victorious seed to take you from a failing seed to a victorious seed you want Christ to say turn off your human DNA and give your will to me and I'll do the work for you you stand still and see my salvation today I know it's available it's happening it's possible and how is it going to work the Bible says that there's going to be a number in heaven that no man can number who have allowed the seed of Christ to be the victory in them I don't need to practice sin till Jesus comes he can turn it off and I could love to read my Bible I can love to love other folk that don't agree with me. I can love to be around people that don't have it all together yet and let Jesus be seen in me. I got a call from a young man last night, got to tell you this story, who I've known for years, I won't mention his name. He went to this church, he worked at 3ABN, choice after choice his life just fell apart And when he walked around, he would never make eye contact with me. Frankly, he didn't like me, and I didn't like who he was, but I loved him. Last night, as I'm working on my sermon, I got a call from this young man, and I found out that we had been helping him, trying to hold life together, but the person that often helps him was out of town, and they told him to call me. And I know that young man did not want to call me, Because when I answered that phone, he said, Sir, I know you don't like me, and I don't like you either. That's the attitude I've always had about you. I know you never liked me, but I needed to call you and ask you for help. I said, No, you got me wrong. I didn't like you. I loved you. I I just didn't like the way you lived. And I've always tried to guide you right, but you wouldn't go that way. And he said, I'm going to ask for help. And you don't have to say yes. I understand because, you know, we were never on talking terms. And I said, no, we were always on talking terms. You just never wanted to talk. (laughs) And he said, can you help me? I'm about to be on the streets by Sabbath afternoon. I have no place to go. And you know I messed up my life can you help me? I said, anytime you call me, I'll help you. What do you need? And I called the hotel, gave him my credit card, and said, let him stay. Give him another week. And I said, if it doesn't work out, call me back. And he said, why are you doing this? He said, I, he said, sir, I now understand I misunderstood you. I said, yes, you did. I didn't like what you did, but I always liked you. Can I check on you? He said, is it okay if I call you and check on you? And today he's in a warm bed somewhere because he thought I didn't like him. I said, I loved you. I just did not like who you represented, but you can call me anytime. And we prayed on that phone last night and I knew that it took that young man everything he had in his heart to make that phone call. Because when I saw him face-to-face on several occasions, he would give me the most disdained look he could muster up. But let me tell you, my brother and my sister, it's not, who people, it's not what people think about us, but it's who people see in us. Let me say that again. You don't have to like me, but I've got to love you. You don't have to agree with my theology, but I got to love you to get in the kingdom. I mean, I like what you do, but God didn't call me to like you, He called me to love you. And I want to make the kingdom. That's why I'm preaching this way, because I know what God did for me, He wants to do for you. So if there's somebody this morning, I'm not asking for a general altar call, you're already standing. But if there's somebody this morning that says, I need a new start in Christ, I need a new beginning. We can make another baptismal pool set on another day, but pastor, I need to be in that pool. I need a new beginning. I need to get that seed in me. I want to wash away that old man, that old habit, that old life, and get a new beginning in Christ. Is there somebody here today that wants to come down and say, yeah, I want that new beginning? Are we all good with Christ? Is somebody need a new beginning today? Does somebody need a new beginning today? To God be the glory. Praise, God. Praise, God. Praise God. This new beginning is going to be rebaptism. Praise the Lord. This young man, I don't know if you've been baptized before. It's a new start. Can the church say amen? Praise the Lord. Janelle, God bless you. Bob. Somebody else here today say, I need that seat in my life. I didn't think it was possible. But I've seen God do. what I didn't know it was available. God bless you both. Kevin and Felicia. Donald. And I'm saying to you today, you don't have to walk out of here and go home and argue with yourself because God could cast down those arguments in your life. He could argue with sin and win every time. There's somebody else here today that say, come close. Now my final appeal is I want you to raise your hand where you are and say, Father in heaven, I know what I need to do, but today I'm going to stop trying and give you the will of my heart, that you can do it through me. Somebody here today, my will has always failed. I can't do it. I want to be a, I want to be a kind Christian, a loving Christian, a person whose words are sweet, flavored with the power of heaven. I ask God sees your hands today. And I want to sing one stanza of this song. And I want to invite my elders to come. Can I have an elder down here with each of these individuals? Bob is an elder. Can I have an elder down here? I want to pray with each one of these individuals. Come on, Ron. Come on, Moses. Now, when you sing this song today, I want you to sing it the way I intended it to be sung. This is an Empire State Building song because the Waldorf story of my past is gone, and Jesus is building an empire state building of sin-free living. Am I perfect? No. But he promised that what he began, he's gonna finish it. Right. And I wanted, I, I, what I'm seeing is getting more excited, but I'm saying, well, I don't know how long it's gonna take to finish this job, but I'm so glad that what you've done thus far is far greater than I've ever been able to do. So when we sing this song today, I want to sing his oath, his covenant and blood. And go to that one, Mike. We're going to sing that song because that passage is where the difference has been made in our lives. He this God. Let's raise that my and stay. Where? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Then when he shall come. Now, as we sing this song, I want you to see yourself in that flight. I want you to see yourself ascending, Kevin, Galatia, the Owens. I want you to see yourself, Bob, ascending, leaving the earth, Moses, going up. When he shall come, this is a reality. It's not a hymn. This is a reality. that's right. Oh, may I then in him be found, clad in his righteousness alone, faultless, less to stand. Is it true that He is able to keep us from falling? Right. Yes. Yes. And to present us faultless before the presence of His glory, Right? Yes. 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 With exceeding joy, honey? Yes. Yes. To the only wise God. Let's sing this testament. When He shall come with trumpet sound oh, Just as faultless to stand for the throne. of Christ, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other, all other ground is sinking sand. As I pray, I learn something about building a building. You see only what the Lord allows you to see, but there's a foundation below that building. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Empire State Building goes down before it goes up. It has a bedrock before it hopes to be able to sustain the megatonnage above the ground. My brothers and sisters, Christ can sustain you, but he's going to give you a bedrock that he has laid, that the devil has not been able to demolish, that all the forces of hell have not been able to demolish, that darkness has not been able to demolish, that sin has not been able to demolish. It is so pure that when he left, he said, I'm going to go build me another one, a gorgeous city, the New Jerusalem. And one day we are going to all stand on a city that Satan, at the very last, He's going to say, let's go take the city. And the Lord said, you ain't demolishing this either. Because <laughs> that's their home. I'm going in that city. But he's got to demolish the one that's built in our lives. And rebuild us now so that we can walk through those gates. We're going to go in Moses. We're going in. We're going in. We're going in together. We're going in hand in hand. And when I see Jesus... I'm going to need eternity just to thank him. So, y'all give me some time. (laughs) I could talk long, but there's a reason I'm going to thank him. Loving Father in heaven, gracious God, loving Lord, victorious Savior. We see sin in all of its dark hues. And we have fought an enemy that we cannot see and failed every time. We have faced attitudes and habits in our own lives, the dark spaces in our, the cavities of our own hidden lives. We have faced them only to come out scarred and even more scarred and even more scarred. And we have wondered on those hopeless days, is there any help for me? And then we hear the voice. Come unto me, all you that labor, and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, today... These precious souls, we have all stood with the question, with the request, Lord, demolish what in us will not make it to the kingdom. And build in us that which alone can be produced and built by you. Fashion us, mold us, and shape us. One day when we stand before the unfallen worlds and they try to find out who we are, they'll say they are just another reflection of Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness, new beginnings, broken down habits, hostile thoughts. Thank you for the power to get rid of them all and the power to stand free in this earth and one day free on the sea of glass. We give all the glory to you and all the praise to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's children said Amen Now